Welcome everyone to the Take Control of Your Health podcast. This is Dr. Mercola bringing you the latest cutting edge interviews to help you achieve optimal health. You can receive more information by subscribing to my free daily newsletter at Mercola.com because you won't find us on Google or Facebook. We respect your privacy and will continue to fight the Silicon Valley censorship. Thank you so much for listening. So let's get started with this week's latest program to help you and your family take control of your health. Welcome everyone, Dr. Mercola helping you take control of your health. And today we're going to dive deeply into the continued craziness that's going around. And we're joined with Dr. Jancy Lindsay, who is a, a molecular biologist and toxicologist. And uh, that's actually, if I was to go back and get a degree, it would be in molecular biology. It's really my passion because it's so foundational to figure things out in biology. So I'm, I'm always excited when I get to talk to someone with that type of training, and especially as it relates to uh, COVID-19. So welcome and thank you for joining us today. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Good to be well, here. Yeah, well, I neglected to mention one of the reasons that brought you to prominence recently, which is that I believe in April, you testified before the uh, CDC's ACIP committee, which is the, advi uh, the advisory vaccine committee for advisory committee for for vaccines as all it's all vaccine practices i think so you gave a three-minute testimony uh, uh, i'm not sure how you got into that position to do it but you you really uh practice it really well and were speaking very fast and uh, got a lot of information in there before they cut you off in mid-sentence so and that brought you out in the uh in the in the limelight but uh, i i'm you know, we're, we're going to go dive deep because you've got a lot of knowledge that you and uh, professional training that gives you specific expertise to comment on this area, uh, specifically with a, a vaccine you developed for contraceptive in the 90s, which backfired. So uh, we'll, we'll definitely talk about that in a bit. But I'm particularly curious is what brought you into this? Why did you become so passionate about this? And, and how can you comment on this so freely without any fear of being discredited or ostracized or, or even professionally uh, nullified? Uh, so, so there's several questions there. Uh, the first, how did I get interested in it? I became interested in the issue um, because science was not making sense anymore. Uh, and to get to that, for instance, herd immunity was being redefined. Herd immunity has always been defined by a combination of the natural infection with uh, vaccination practices uh, that work. And uh, suddenly herd immunity was changed to only being attained through vaccination. And I knew that that was horribly wrong, um, yet it was being touted everywhere. It was certainly being touted by Fauci and others who know better. And uh, other things were happening within the scientific world as far as, you know, two of our top tier journals, uh, Jam or um, the New England Journal of Medicine and the Lancet, publishing uh, fraudulent hydroxychloroquine studies. Uh, after, uh, you know, ostensibly they'd gone through peer review and uh, should have been easy to catch the errors in the studies, uh, as well as many other studies that, that allowed for the emergency use authorization of these uh, gene therapies. And they weren't caught. 
And so um, other things, you know, uh, hydroxychloroquine and ivermectin are, are very safe. They've been used safely in pregnant women and children for uh, decades. And suddenly they were being vilified as if they were not safe. And as a toxicologist, I know they are safe. So uh, these types of things really piqued my attention, along with all of the uh, stuff going on in the background with respect to uh, the new world order and the agenda set by the World Economic Forum and are joining into this along with so many other countries, despite their their uh, intent or, or their materials, which claim, you know, life will be changed as we know it. We will own nothing and be happy in just a few years. All of these things converged for me into a um, a sense that something had gone horribly wrong, uh, that our regulatory institutes were captured, that our scientific journals were not being honest anymore. Um, that's okay, kind of well, I, 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 I don't know why, but I'm just really intrigued as to why I, to as to why someone, some a, a scientific professional as yourself would come to this conclusion, which I totally agree with, but, but you have to understand, of course, that there's the large percentage of other professionals in your field have bought hook, line and sinker, the propaganda and the brainwashing, and maybe they haven't and just refused to speak out. And so I'm just wondering what in your history opened your eyes to this and immunized you to this, to this uh, propaganda, because it is pure propaganda, nothing but propaganda. Uh, and do you think, do you think that the, I mean, what's your guess as to the other professionals, the scientists that you're in your community and your network that as to why they aren't speaking out? Is it they bought the propaganda or they're just afraid? Wow, um, that's a question that's perplexed many of us that uh, have analyzed the situation critically. Uh, I, I believe it's a combination of both. Uh, I think that there is definitely in academia, there is a um, psychosis maybe to be beholden to those that are above you or group think mm -hmm. uh, where if you get outside of academia, which I have been for a number of years, I've been consulting as a toxicologist. And so you're, you, you're a private practice, so to speak. I am. And I have been, and I also own my own company. So people who and, and have, and have for years, uh, people that uh, go their own way. And I've always been one of those. And I've always been one to question the status quo. I've always been one to do things differently, um, to come up with different solutions, which have been helpful for my clients. Um, I've never been an in the box thinker. And so I'm not afraid to look outside of the normal avenues for explanations to what's going on. And I definitely don't not see what's right in front of my face or discount it because it doesn't go along with the group ideology. Yeah. So I, I think you answered the question indirectly in that you're an entrepreneur. <laughs> and as an entrepreneur, you have a special skill set that uh, really places you head and shoulders above others who have not to to diminish their intellectual thinking capacity or their skill set, but have chosen to remain in academia or in institutions where they're beholden to uh, the powers that be. And especially, you know, Fauci being the chief godfather in this whole mess, having been responsible for distributing not a billion dollars, but one 
trillion dollars in funding over his career through the NIH or NIAID. So that's a lot of power. And uh, if you choose to cross Fauci in any way, shape or form, you are just demolished, literally decimated and taken out of the the profession. So there's that creates a, a, a enormous sense of fear within the academic community. So, I mean, the fact that you're out of that gives you quite a bit of freedom that uh, these other probably likely reputable and, and great scientific minds just are unable to go forward because, you know, they just don't have the, uh, the flexibility and the courage to do that. Well, I think they're not even seeing the same um, I know with with uh, some of my colleagues, they don't even they don't even see what we're seeing. It's almost as if they're blinded to what's going on. That's what happens um, when you're brainwashed. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, they they truly uh, many truly believe that these vaccines are safe and are effective, and they come up with a million reasons why. Well, first of all, they're not vaccines; they're injections, right. they're genetic the therapy, gene therapies, right? Yeah. Right, we, and we, um, because when you call them vaccines, it, it's sort of sanctifies them and it gives them the illusion that they're somewhat similar to the previous vaccines that have been implemented, which I have major problems with. I know you're, we're probably disagree on that because you developed vaccines in the past. So, but there's many people who are pro vaccine, like Peter McCullough and Robert Malone, the co-inventor of the mRNA vaccines who are, he's a vaccinologist and he, both of these individuals, incredibly bright people, Mm-hmm. got the vac, got the COVID jab and the injection. So they believed in it, but they subsequently learned that there was a different strategy. You're right. They're not, they're not vaccines. They are gene therapies and it's a brand new type of technology that we've never used um, in the population as we are using it. It's been used for high risk cancer situations and some trials. Uh, but beyond that, no. And um, I think that we've gotten into this thinking scenario that is really wrong. You can be pro standard vaccine Mm -hmm. and still be anti 20 vaccines before the age of two. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's an important distinction. We've gone from just, you know, four shots given in 1950 by the age of two to 26 shots given by the age of two, now in 56, I think, given by the age of 18. Um, At what point does the number of injections contribute detrimentally uh, to children? I think that's a valid question. You can be pro-vaccine and still question whether the proper studies are being done uh, to evaluate the combinatorial effect of multiple vaccines at an early age and multiple excipients and, and other things. And so this being characterized as an anti-vaxxer or something is, is really incorrect. I also did not, I, I was not the developer of the vaccine of the Zona vaccine in, in the 90s. Oh, okay. I was, that was my first uh, laboratory job at Baylor College of Medicine. And I was working in a reproductive biology lab where I was on a team that was working on the development of this vaccine. So I certainly didn't develop it myself. My you know, credit should, should not go okay, to Okay, well, thank you for that clarification, but you yeah. participated in it and it had- I did, absolutely. Mm-hmm. And it had some unintended side effects or consequences. So 
maybe we can go into that now because it was it was for contraception, but it wound up <laughs> causing ovarian failure and sterilization. <laughs> right, right, and now it's used uh, in that manner in uh, in animals and dogs and cats and and other animals. So uh, yes, we were developing a temporary contraceptive vaccine, what was meant to be a top temporary contraceptive vaccine, which was very attractive because it actually prevented um, fertilization rather than preventing implantation. So, or it should have, that was the idea. Um, Unfortunately, even though quite a bit of analysis was done in different animal models to make sure that it did not have an autoimmune action, it did end up having an autoimmune action and caused complete ovarian destruction. So uh, that's a cautionary tale of how animal studies can help us to avoid mistakes in humans when they're they're used properly and when proper animal studies are done. Uh, In the case of these gene therapies, these important studies were not done. And uh, I really feel that, that there is a, um, well, now we know that there is a danger signal from uh, at least two publications that have come out, the New England Journal of Medicine publication on pregnancy lost in the first trimester reported to bears and be safe. And then the, um, the Singapore study, the anti sensit one study uh, that came out of Singapore. All right, we'll go on Sinsitin in a little bit, but I wanna clarify the uh, the latest analysis with respect to uh, uh, spontaneous abortions. I, I believe the number was like eighty five percent or so in the first trimester. Is that what the studies published? Close to eighty two percent. Okay, yes. yeah. So that is just crazy. Now, it, clearly, there is a certain threshold, not threshold, but baseline that's a, that's a present in spontaneous abortions just without any variables introduced. And I don't know, maybe 10, 15, 20 13, Yeah, about 13%. Yeah. I mean, on the yeah. high end, they say it can go up to 20. And we have to make sure to analyze the, the, the information properly. These were already cases in VAERS, reported to VAERS. Mm-hmm. So, um, of course, that skews the population, but the, the important part of it was that amongst the cohort study, which I think was 827 uh, women, uh, 700 of which got the vaccine in the third trimester, and then 127 of which got the vaccine, they said before 13 weeks. So that really places it pretty much in the first trimester, maybe a couple in the second trimester. Um, 104 of those 127 lost their pregnancies. Uh, amongst the whole cohort. So instead of uh, concluding in their final statement that there was a clear safety signal with vaccination in the first trimester as 82% of the women lost their pregnancies, then they concluded very uh, wiggle wordishly and very fraudulently uh, in my in my estimation, that it was safe to vaccinate in the third trimester and said nothing about the clear safety signal in the first trimester. I mean, just, just, just so dishonest, so, so purposefully manipulative, and then concluded that it was still safe to give vaccines during pregnancy. I mean, shame on them. Uh, yeah, so in, at least safe from the perspective of no noticeable deaths <laughs> in the time of observation. So uh, as someone who studied this and familiar with the uh, autoimmune component, 
and uh, especially with the antibodies that's in sitting, what do you believe the potential is for those who safely were given the COVID injection in the third trimester? There's, there's likely some long-term consequences from that intervention. Well, you know, we just don't know. And that's the problem. There are all kinds of things that can go wrong with, um, with these types of therapies and have gone wrong in animal models. We don't know what will happen in the future for these women or for their children. Um, this could be passed on. Uh, we're, we're seeing now a lot of mention of uh, constitutive expression, whether that's failure of the mRNA to degrade or integration into the genome, uh, that's still being investigated. I think Bruce Patterson's group is, is doing some of that work. Um, and that's again, ongoing. We're, we're discovering this during, sure, during real time. the time In real when time, we're giving yeah. these gene therapies. And, and what's appalling to me is, so the, so there was a report that the CDC came out with over 300 deaths in children ages 12 to 18 um, from myocarditis. Now this was published in the news, but not something that I had of. And I know they're withholding a lot of cases. I'm not sure whether someone did a FOIA request and actually got this information. So they tried to come out ahead of it. Uh, we know that there are in excess of 50,000 uh, deaths that they've held back that, that are not put into the system yet for whatever reason. No, wait, wait. That's, <clears throat> is that from the CDC whistleblower that filed the SALT lawsuit in Alabama? Yes. But there's also other information uh, from other databases. There's apparently 11 databases that are going into uh, the CDC VAERS mm -hmm. counts. And, you know, that was just from one database mm -hmm. that the excess uh, 50,000 deaths was reported. So we've, there's, there's a lot going on there and a lot that we don't know, but I expect that that number is correct, uh, the excess of 300, even though we're not seeing those numbers actually published into bears. Otherwise, they wouldn't have come out and said anything mm -hmm. like that. Um, so this many deaths, uh, it's appalling and alarming. Um, Peter McCullough, or Dr. McCullough says the, the safety signal for typical vaccines or for typical well, for typical vaccines, other than this gene therapy, would have been around 186 total. And I think we're now up to 12,000 um, reported. Uh, but they haven't paused this in children. They have not paused this while they're investigating the myocarditis. They've done the converse. They're <laughs> aggressively it. recommending it. They're pushing it even more. What has this ever happened before? I mean, does it, does this happen in, in a scenario where the population is at essentially zero risk for the disease, yet you know it's causing heart failure, pulmonary emboli, cardiac arrest in healthy teenagers, and you're not pausing to investigate you know, the risk versus reward scenario. Something is horribly wrong. Uh, and unfortunately, our, our regulatory institutions are not going to stop this. They've clearly been captured. Uh, it's something that we're going to have to do, uh, vaccinated and unvaccinated, standing together uh, on together to say, no, you're not going to experiment on my children. Well, that you've brought up some really good questions that I definitely want to dive into them, but I want to tie up the loose end on the sensitin and the antibodies uh, so that if you could... 
um, just briefly describe that because uh, you understand it really well and uh, how it can contribute to long-term challenges, especially as related to fertility. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so there was a study that came out uh, in Singapore. I think it was 15, 15 women, um, two of which were pregnant. Uh, they, they did something that I had asked to be done a long time ago, which was to measure anti-syncytin antibodies in an ELISA test. Uh, the syncytins are confirmationally and um, genetically similar to uh, the spike protein, this fusogenic spike protein. And so uh, the thought by several was that you could have an autoimmune reaction to the syncytins by developing an immune reaction to the spike protein. And then that would prevent successful pregnancy. Um, but the syncytins are also important in a number of uh, psychological diseases, bipolar depression. Uh, they're important on autoimmune disease, lupus, um, and uh, multiple sclerosis. Uh, they, they are present in skeletal muscle. Uh, there's some association with breast cancer. The, the really um, important ancient retroviral elements. Uh, so what the study found was extremely interesting. It found that every single one of these women uh, that had been vaccinated developed autoantibodies to syncytin one. Now the authors kind of dismissed this um, and said, oh, but we don't think that those antibodies were high enough to mean anything. Um, and, and there was a clear, clear difference between the uh, prior to vaccination sera and the post-vaccination sera. Now they didn't have prior vaccination sera or prior gene therapy sera for being correct. In the pregnant uh, cohort, uh, they found out after words, uh, they were enrolled in the study. So uh, what it shows is, is that there is an antibody response uh, and the significance of it, uh, we don't really know, but it proves out what Dr. Yeadon and others had been saying, including myself, uh, that, that people would develop every single one of the women developed an antibody response that was different from uh, the, the baseline. Uh, in the one to four day group, so the, the criticism of it is, is that people say, well, they already had these antibodies in the one to four day group that were similar to the antibody response in the you know six to seven week or three to four week group. Therefore, it's not a real antibody response. Well, that's silly. That's just silly. They did have an antibody response. They had a, they had a uh, first line antibody response, and then they had a sustained response later as well. Uh, that does nothing to disprove that they don't have antibodies. It's just silly to say so. Um, that's my analysis on it. And uh, I think that's probably what's causing some of these pregnancy losses. Well, what's your suspicion with respect to the uh, development of these antibodies is how likely that may contribute to future challenges with infertility and uh, sort of the corollary to that. When I know you're uh, not opposed to this concept that many people believe is a depopulation strategy is the one of the ultimate uh, motivations behind this uh, COVID injection strategy. I certainly think that it, to discount that uh, it is a form of population-wide contraceptive would be naive. Um, there's a paper that came out in the, 
Let's see. It came out in 2004. It's called Evaluation of Fusogenic Trophoblast Surface Epitopes as Targets for Immune Contraception. Mm-hmm. This study of that's a mouthful. That's a mouthful. So translate it for us. <laughs> sure. So this was a paper that explored trying to find contraceptive peptides mm-hmm. in persons that had infertility problems already that were isolated to placentation. So it was taking a backwards approach, getting the sera from people that had fertility problems and trying to see what they had antibodies to that was causing the fertility problems as a way of working backwards and then forwards again to create sterility or contraceptive peptides. Mm -hmm. Now this work was sponsored by the WHO and by the Rockefeller foundation, no surprise there. Mm -hmm. Um, It was then picked up by a company called Applogen who took it to patent in 2007 uh, these are 12 more peptides, and there's a series of eight of them mm-hmm. that can be used to um, induce sterility. And can uh, when they patented it, they also said that it could be used to ameliorate sterility. Uh, but interestingly, it was also associated with all of the things that we know that syncytin is associated with. They say lupus, they say skeletal muscle disorders, they say uh, bipolar depression, they say a number of other things. So I'll I'll definitely send it to you. It's quite interesting. Mm -hmm. Even though they don't name syncytin proteins as the proteins that are targeted, they worked backwards from these peptides and then said they were a series of other proteins. And sometimes we know that proteins can be called Uh, the same thing in different discovery realms. So uh, that that's going to take more research, but it was certainly interesting to me. And what it really points out is that there were efforts to use uh, peptides or immunocontraceptive um, means at the placental trophoblast interface uh, to cause sterilization. So it wouldn't be outside of the realm. And it was, and it was sponsored by the world health organization and it was sponsored by the Rockefeller foundation and it was sponsored by the national institutes of health. So uh, it would be naive to think that this was not on the plate for uh, future use. Yeah. So it, it makes perfect sense. So let's get into some of the other areas where you have particular expertise, especially in molecular biology. And uh, I, I understand before I ask this question that the answer, the, the answer, the true answer is we don't know because they haven't done the studies. But that doesn't mean we can't postulate some hypothesis. And uh, you're well qualified in that field to to generate one. So the question to you is with your understanding of that messenger RNA and the technology that they've deployed to uh, with this COVID injection, this nanoliposome uh, with uh, polyethylene glycol uh, to protect it and stabilize it. And then not only that, but then to modify that messenger RNA, like 30% of it is, is genetically different than the mRNA for their actual spike protein. And, it, and these modifications are primarily done to decrease the resistance to uh, degradation, degradation because messenger RNA is very, very fragile. So that was the whole intent. So based on that, 
you know, that is so damn sturdy, so to speak. And they've got this highly efficient delivery system, these nanoliposomes to get it into the tissues that we know spreads throughout the whole body, doesn't stay where it's put in the injection site in the deltoid. What do you think? And it's again, I know this is a hypothesis, but you know, your insights are, are going to be useful as to how long this messenger RNA is going to hang around. And then a corollary to that question is the ability of your body through reverse transcriptase to convert that messenger RNA to DNA and then actually integrate it into your own genome. Okay, so wow, that's that's a mouthful. And you yeah, of course, I, I love to get mouthfuls. <laughs> I'm going to forget to answer something. That's um, okay. I'll remind no, you. No, you have, of course, um, you have an excellent understanding of, of what's going on, and you have the best resources by being able to talk to a lot of other molecular biologists besides me, mm -hmm. um, and a lot of other people in the vaccine field. Uh, the answer is we don't know for sure. No, so we really have don't. some. We have but some, we can guess. We can right. Guess. So, so with uh, of course with the adenoviral vector vaccines, they're more prone to integration into the to the genome. We know that from from animal studies and past um, past experiments. With the mRNA technology, uh, we've never stabilized something like this in this manner. Uh, what we do know is that a recent study has come out. Again, um, Bruce Patterson's group, and then another group. Uh, both came out with the finding that the spike protein is being expressed uh, present on monocytes uh, as far out as from the time that the people were, vac were vaccinated or given the gene therapy, however you want to term it. Um, so that gives us an indication that it is resistant for sure to degradation um, the longer it stays around and is resistant to degradation, the more likely that um, genomic integration events can occur. So I don't know the answer to whether or not it will become a permanent feature. Uh, there are certainly molecular biologists that um, are involved in this technology. I would, um, you know, Dr. Malone, is, is yeah, it? I forgot to ask him that question when I interviewed him because we, we, right, we, we so, really went to the tangent of bioethics as opposed to the m mechanisms of the gene therapy intervention. But I'll I, ask him I, this afternoon. <laughs> yeah, ask him. And please let me know. I was going to email him yeah. too because he would be really well qualified, especially with the delivery systems, because you think that's the key. Yeah, and I don't work in the so, so effectively. Yes, <laughs> I'm sorry to interrupt you. Yeah. yeah. And I don't, I don't work in that particular area anymore. Um, I do toxicology consulting work. So I'm years out of actually working on a vaccine um, or working with any kind of genetic manipulation in the job that I do now. So really uh, picking the brain of someone who is close to it and develop the technology and knows all those ins and outs is is yeah, the yeah, appropriate be, person, is the appropriate expert from my, um, yeah. from my standpoint. I can only tell you what's been uh, published in the literature and, and then, you know, go off my, my education. Well, that is a very so. honest answer. Thank you for sharing that. Sure. So, uh, so what are your other, I mean, you've been looking at this and you're obviously concerned. You have mm -hmm. some fundamental, well, first of all, your brain still works. Uh, and it's not no. <laughs> essentially brainwashed, 
I mean, it's just shocking to me what's going on. So uh, one of the things that, that, that become really obvious to me recently is maybe one of the primary motivations to getting everyone the COVID injection is it does something very, very clever. And essentially something that's been done in almost every other vaccine, previous vaccine therapy. And that is they've eliminated the controls. There are no controls. Everyone got the injection. I'm a control. Everyone. I'm sorry? I'm a control. Well, I know, so am I. <laughs> but I'm saying that's the, the, the it could yes. be one of the primary motivations to eliminate the controls. Because if you eliminate the controls, then you have yeah. no way to determine what the, what the real damage what the safety signal is. Yes, yeah. you're right. You're, you're absolutely right. So I, I think that's behind it. And this is the, the first intervention that they're not getting away with it. I mean, they got, I, when I, I, I went into practice in 1985 and I remember really clearly at that time that the flu vaccine was targeted for very specific subgroups, people with chronic um, uh, pulmonary conditions, the elderly and healthcare workers. That was it. No one else got it. Now it's every human. All, the only uh, qualification for getting, uh, being a candidate for the flu vaccine is you'd be able to, <laughs> be able to breathe, you know, so they give it to newborns. So there's, there's no controls. There's not. And it's, you know, it, this came up recently in something that I, that I wrote for a couple um, given that, somehow the flu disappeared last year, mm -hmm. which of course is extremely suspect. All right. We already know that uh, masks do not prevent the spread of influenza or of uh, the, you know, SARS-CoV, SARS, anything. Um, the size of the masks is, is well, a the, thousand the, times bigger, the pore size, even in an N95. Is, but the speculation for that is that it, it, it rests on these droplet particles, which are in fact stopped. No, that's no. They're, they're, I know, but that's what they're saying. That's what they're, <laughs> the now, they're great for pretending, uh, protecting against bacterial pneumonia if you change your mask, yeah. because of, we know bacteria are much larger and it does protect against bacterial infection, but you have to change your mask if you're rebreathing um, you know, things that can cause bacterial pneumonia as they found, then it doesn't help at all. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think where I was going with this, um, on the, on the mass, we know those don't work. Yeah. And so this pushing, uh, that they somehow work. There's a paper that came out in 2006 and it was called, it's, it, it's you like the old, you like the oldies, right? Well, I think it just, it's called sure. disease mitigation measures in the control of pandemic influenza. Yeah. Yeah. It's totally appropriate. And this paper is wonderful. It goes through world health organization and CDC guidelines on how to uh, react during a pandemic and what works and what doesn't work. And it clearly points out that masks don't work back then. They, they knew at that point, they don't work. Travel lockdowns don't work. Um, it, it's a wonderful paper to basically go through everything that we have done in response to this uh, pandemic uh, and say that that's an inappropriate way to respond. And we have scientific data that proves it. So I encourage everybody to go back to this paper, Disease Mitigation Majors and the Control of Pandemic Influenza. It's Ingleby et al., uh, Inglesby 2006. 
um, just to really see how crazy we've gotten in, in the mandates uh, that make no scientific sense at all. So I'm curious on your testimony to the, to the CDC Advisory Committee on Vaccines. Uh, what was the what was the outcome of that, or the feedback, or the discrediting challenges that were thrown at you? I never heard anything back. I think what we all saw was that they made a decision within minutes of, you know, the last testimonies. Uh, they couldn't possibly have considered any of what was offered reasonably. Uh, they couldn't have, and it was the same thing with the next ACIP meeting. Um, in, in my estimation, this group has been captured. Um, it's, as, as uh, Dr. McCullough said, he said typically there would be other boards as well that would be assigned to review uh, that were outside of the CDC that would be outside, assigned to review a new technology, um, especially any new traditional vaccine. And they're completely absent from this effort. Now, why would that be? especially this type of effort. Um, uh, recently, the American Medical Association came out and decided that gender was not important anymore <laughs> to medicine a couple days ago. Um, you know, I have, I have my thoughts on that with respect to communism and, and the removal of gender identity. Mm. But... Uh, well, let's it's, get back to the, mm-hmm. the vaccine and why it wasn't removed. McCullough, I had a chance to interview and dialogue with him. And he mentioned in the interview that he was actually headed up several uh, data event monitoring boards on different trials before. And exactly. it was essentially unconscionable not to have one of these for this intervention. And he said if they had, with his experience, and he looked at the data, mm-hmm. he said this whole vaccine quote unquote vaccine COVID injection therapy would have been shut down mid of January of this year. I mean, 186 deaths. Yeah. I believe he said. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and so just, I want you to take off on this and the fact of this, a previous epidemic we have, which is probably prior to where you were doing any serious academic work, which is in the 1970s where they had the uh, swine flu and they actually came up with the vaccine that they encouraged and recommended everyone to take. So about almost 50 million people took it and had 25 deaths, two, five, 25 deaths. And they shut down the program. There was no vaccine compensation program at that time. That was seventies yep. that the, the 19, that the, that didn't come into effect in 1986. So the government picked up the bill. It was over three and a half billion dollars that they paid it for these deaths and the, the injuries, primarily neurologic, like Gillian Bray syndrome. So 20, here's the point, 25 deaths. We are at a, 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 an absolute conservative base of 12,000 deaths. Now probably mm-hmm. over 50,000 in reality. And we're still going strong, not even still going strong. We're giving bribes. We're paying, offering the lotteries, a million, $5 million, offering to pay everyone a hundred dollars to get this injection. And we're not, we're doing the exact opposite. It couldn't be more extreme uh, contrasting reaction. So I'll, I'll let you go on that one because there's a lot to say on this. Yeah. So, so as you mentioned, uh, Dr. McCullough, pointed out that 186 deaths should have stopped, which which would have been achieved towards the end of January, should have stopped uh, these 
this vaccine campaign. It ended up uh, in the 1971 swine flu vaccine campaign that although 26 deaths stopped it, uh, they ended up with 53 after mm-hmm. the fact yeah, being right. diagnosed. Um, but yes, you're right, 26 stopped it. And, um, you know, there's some argument about that. Some people say, well, this was, uh, that was different because the reason why they stopped the campaign there is they found that it was only isolated out of Fort Detrick. I think it, it, it didn't spread. They found that it was contained within that area. And because uh, those deaths were all to that particular group, of course, we have many, many more Guillain-Barre uh, cases in this group. Um, I haven't counted how many Guillain-Barre associated deaths, um, but the cardiac deaths alone in kids, perfectly healthy kids mm-hmm. and pulmonary embolism deaths in kids should have stopped this. They are at no risk. There's no reason to vaccinate them. Absolutely zero reason to give them these gene therapies because they're at no risk. So if that doesn't tell you something that they're still pushing to get everybody this gene therapy, and we have all these breakthrough cases too. If you look at Michigan, and I've, I've actually been privy to some other databases uh, of true uh, death numbers in different states, uh, according to those who are vaccinated and those who don't. And I can tell you that the media is lying uh, with respect to the unvaccinated, you know, being the 99% in the hospital, they're, they're absolutely lying. Well, well, let's put a hole there and go into it because it sounds fascinating, but I just want to tie up the swine flu, which is, I believe in the late seventies when they ended the campaign. So the interesting thing about that, this is when there wasn't massive censorship where there wasn't actually social media didn't exist outside the normal channels we had historically, but essentially, I mean, Mike Wallace did a, did a really true investigative journalism and that's when it was still tolerated. CBS would never, never, in fact, they do the exact opposite. They were promoting Peter Daszak and the Eco Health Alliance as being the, the victors and, the, uh, and the, the pioneers in this, where they actually were one of the major villains in this, this whole story. So anyway, they, they that came off and, and heads rolled, and I'm pretty confident that at that time, the head of the NIH was terminated. He lost his job. And do you know who replaced him? Fauci. Yes. Yeah. Yes, yeah. it was. It was Fauci. <laughs> and, and maybe it wasn't the NIH, because I know he's not- The NIAID. Yeah, that was the, the okay. role. But he got replaced, and that's when he started his career. He, that's when he started it. And then, of course, the AIDS, AIDS epidemic came shortly after that, HIV. So- uh, Anyway, let's go. So I just wanted to get that as a tangent because I thought it was really interesting that that absolutely swine flu is actually what brought what uh, vectored in Fauci. Right. And and with the RSV uh, vaccines and with the dengue fever vaccines, we uh, we had deaths that uh, deaths in children that were much lesser in number that stopped those campaigns as well. It's very, very clear. If you don't get anything else out of this whole uh, interview with me, understand that our regulatory and safety agencies have been captured. In essence, they are not doing their job and they're not doing their job to protect you or your children. You must not trust them because they are not doing anything according to practices that used to be adhered to. It's clear that they've been captured and compromised. And I hate to say that, I, I, I really hate to say that, but that's the only logical answer. 
Um, so what, so you've been, um, diving deep into this and analyzing it from uh, mm -hmm. your perspective. And I'm wondering what some of the other, uh, lessons or, uh, I guess the lessons to learn from what we've been gathering and or highlights of things that you, pieces of information that you understand that you believe may not be completely and deeply as appreciated as they should be? Well, uh, I think that we're still investigating the actual components of these gene therapies. Uh, people are doing laboratory analysis to fetter out the questions of additional um, ingredients and contaminants, not only ingredients, but contaminants that may have uh, been there. You'll recall that uh, for a couple of these different uh, gene therapies, they've been stopped because they found contamination at the facilities. And so they stopped. Um, it's certainly interesting with respect to them extending the um, the time on the safe use of the vials that they're not expiring, they're extending the months out. And apparently they don't require the extreme refrigeration that they did in the beginning, either with the way that they're being dispensed. Um, so many things are not going according to typical safety uh, parameters. Informed consent, of course, being a huge one. You can't possibly have informed consent for something that you don't know the long-term consequences of and is not described within the material. Uh, pharmacists are getting batches of vaccine that have absolutely no data sheets that go along with them. Yeah, well, no. well, I would disagree. You could potentially have informed consent if you allowed an honest, uncensored dialogue on this and not eliminate and ban and remove all content on social media that says anything to the counter. Then it's impossible, because really, or virtually impossible. But, but theoretically, even though that sheet is blank, mm -hmm. if, there were, if there was enough information out there that the people could easily and freely read it, then they can make a decision. Right. And there's so much misinformation going on. I want to give you an example because it's something that I think is, is, is really important. Recently, um, one of the physicians I know spoke out at a meeting in Pennsylvania, uh, Bucks County, I believe, and she was trying to inform the board there of misinformation that was going out. And, and by misinformation, what she meant to say is misinformation about the number of deaths and adverse reactions that were not getting to the proper health officials from the CDC. And she wanted to promote that they had a weekly download of deaths and vaccine injuries or gene therapy in this case injuries from the CDC so that they could analyze them um, in true context. And at, at the end of her minutes after she, seconds after she finished speaking, the head of the board quickly said, oh, but we don't want to stop people from uh, getting vaccinated and the vaccines are completely safe. The COVID-19, this is in her words, vaccines are completely safe. There have been no deaths. So, so, they, adverse so, so they shot her. Right. Right. Well, they shot her, but they, this woman actually <laughs> said dead. at the point, at the point when there were 10,000 deaths reported in bears at the time from these gene therapies, she said on camera, this health board official with Pennsylvania said there have been zero deaths. Mm. 
another doctor recently came out in Arkansas. That, that, that's uh, a classic illustration of incredible brainwashing. How else could you explain that? Or it's lying. It, it's well, either that or they're not educating themselves or completely ignorant yeah. of what's going on. And I can't imagine that they're that ignorant to get to that spot. So they're well, lying. You imagine that this is the most sophisticated propaganda campaign in the history of the human race. No question. It's incredibly clever and amazing strategies they're using that. And you can see, I mean, that is just an astonishing story, but I mean, I would, I mean, maybe they're aligned I mean, that's a possibility, but they could truly sincerely believe that because they've been so effectively brainwashed. How could they not know? I mean, this, they, even they on mainstream media, they're publishing a few of the they deaths. They actually anything. say there have been zero deaths. I mean, yes, come on. yes, right, yeah. In yes. that position, no, no, I, I, I don't believe it. I think they're lying. Um, that's, <laughs> that's just my. I, I don't think you can be that stupid and get that far, um, or that obtuse. Uh, the same thing with the doctor in Arkansas that's come out, Harrison, on on Facebook and and said that he, you know, this long uh, cry scenario about how so many patients have come into his emergency room with severe COVID and everybody needs to get vaccinated because uh, he's seen it in real time. And then he also says there have been no adverse reactions that have come into, you know, my emergency room to the vaccines. It's just, they're just lies. Well, again, it, it could be so effectively brainwashed uh, that the, 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 uh, a side effect could come into him and hit him over the head and beat him senseless and he still wouldn't see it. Uh, so that's a poss- another possibility. I don't know which one's true, but I, I would not put discount that one at all because uh, they're, they're very clever. So, uh, yeah, it's what, what, but with respect to the COVID injections, I mean, the intention and I've seen you discuss this in previous interviews it, there, with a typical vaccine intervention is d- designed to actually stimulate your immune system and pre- prevent the actual infection. But this one has never been proven to do that. But if you listen to the mainstream media, they will convince you that it not only pre- prevents infections, it prevents you from getting infected. And when that's the furthest thing from the truth, all it does is lower the risk at the risk, but the intensity of the, of the, or the severity of, the, of the, the side effects from the illness. So why don't you expand on that? Because I think it's an important point. Yeah, there's, there's two parts to that. One is uh, whether or not you can ever make an effective uh, vaccine of any type to coronavirus. You know, mm-hmm. 20 years ago, it was discussed that it was a non-neutralizable uh, virus basically through vaccination for whatever reason uh any attempts that they made they found that it it increased upon challenge the um the severity of the viral infection and because they weren't um, making it it wouldn't neutralize yeah yeah there's no neutralizing antibodies there's just non-binding antibodies i believe right and actually even the antibodies founded in a confirmation that allowed for greater entry of the virus into the target cells and so that has always been a concern and that's why it was never brought to market Mm -hmm. um and and they didn't prove otherwise before they brought it to market on the mass human scale in any of the animal studies. So it's really perplexing to me um, 
well, it's not perplexing to me. Yeah, I was going to say it's not perplexing. What it's, what, you, what you understand it. You understand it completely. You know why. So, so yeah, so that's that's the first the first part is that it was never made for that. Um, what was the second part of the question that that you had asked there with respect to the antibody approach or the vet, the uh, well, I, I, I'm not sure, I don't recall it specifically, but the other component to this is the, well, the, 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 the protection against getting infected. Oh, treatments, treatments, yes. Yeah, and then you, you mentioned earlier, there's obviously ivermectin and hydroxychloroquine and vitamin D and a whole wide variety of other approaches. My particular favorite is nebulized hydrogen peroxide, which I think is the strongest of all of them, and then ozone therapy. So those are things that are really discussed even in natural medicine circles, but they are highly, highly effective and virtually non-toxic and essentially free, at least the peroxide is. So it's, it's crazy, crazy that uh, these are ignored. And the safety is extraordinary. There's no one that dies from nebulized peroxide therapy. There's zero deaths, 100% zero deaths. Unless you, unless you get drowned in the peroxide, I guess it's potential. But, you know, done the right way, it just doesn't, there's no damage, none. Yeah, you are, you are absolutely right. Um, I'm less familiar with, with the hydrogen peroxide therapy um, or ozone therapy. I just don't know that much about it. Um, I've, I've heard, of course, that it's safely used. Um, I know that you're a proponent of it, um, being an MDL trust, that uh, your analysis of it is correct on that. Yeah, I, I've personally seen up to 300 people successfully treated with it. And I just recently encountered my the first person that failed to respond. And she was still doing pretty, she was a pretty healthy woman. Uh, failed after, I mean, almost invariably people get I'd say it's 80 to 90% people get better after one treatment. And then by the first day, they're virtually everyone's better. This woman failed to respond after two days. So we suggested it, it, it up the ante and go to ozone therapy. She had problems finding it locally and didn't get in for another four or five days. But when she did get in, boom, the ozone works immediately, as you would expect, because it's a more powerful intervention, essentially oxidative stress right on that organism with uh, virtually mm -hmm. side effects. So. Well, and, you know, we have to think if you, if you don't believe any of um, if, if you don't believe any of the adverse effect information, let's say you don't believe that anybody has had a, an acute adverse effect to this, you have to consider reasonably and rationally that there are effective treatments, hydroxychloroquine, ivermectin, ozone is used I guess, uh, hydrogen, there are effective and safe treatments. And if all these gene therapies do is lessen the disease, then they're not a vaccine. They are a treatment. They are a treatment that you don't know the mid or long-term consequences of that have already caused a number of adverse events. Even if you don't think they've caused any deaths, there's clearly no one has said that. Half they a million documented in bars. But let's just say you don't, you don't believe any of that. Yeah. You have to use your common sense to say, why wouldn't I use a treatment that has been known safe for you know over 70 years, as opposed to one that is brand new, that is experimental. So that's a takeaway from there. Um, you know, other things, other safety signals that we're seeing. Uh, in the in the hospitals, very interesting. Uh, de novo type uh, one diabetes. Uh, really? Oh, yeah, from the, from in the, adults. From so the COVID yes, injection is a consequence. 
Yes, but we're also, so uh, this makes sense, of course, mechanistically as too, because uh, of the biodistribution study, which shows that uh, spike goes to pancreas. Uh, we also see it with COVID, with the SARS-CoV infection, viral infection, we're seeing de novo type one diabetes in adults. Uh, and now we're seeing de novo type one diabetes in adults. That sucks. Uh, that's a, that's a injection. terrible disease. I mean, because you're just so hand, metabolically handicapped the rest of your life, unless you get a, essentially some future uh, stem cell or stem cell equivalent transplant to get your, your beta cells back in the pancreas. Right. I mean, it's you're just ruined to have type one diabetes. And some, some have even said that they've seen an increase in pancreatic cancer mm -hmm. uh, at their institutions. We're seeing some increase in AML. Mm -hmm. uh, they've, uh, with the pancytopenias uh, and everything, these are all being investigated. Um, certainly acute myeloid leukemia is not uh, something to be taken lightly post uh, inoculation. So, all under investigation right now. Yeah, and most likely the reason they, they heavily censored all these other interventions was the requirement for emergency use authorization uh, specifically uh, mm -hmm. indicates that there can't be any other effective therapies. Otherwise, it's not, it, it can't be implemented. That's so right. They, they had to suppress that information and and. and and actively dis suppress it. I mean, by publishing fraudulent studies in prestigious journals like Lancet, you know, where Surgisphere had a database that was 100% corrupted and, and, and essentially fake. It generated, it was completely It was fake, yeah, fake. So. Um, and the massive hydroxychloroquine doses that were given. Oh, uh, yeah. Dr. Zelenkov had a great little uh, summary of, of those studies. Um, that he put out. I wish I could remember which cast it was, but he did a great job summarizing all of the studies and how they used doses, you know, known toxic doses of the drug uh, in order to skew the results and show toxicity that otherwise wouldn't have been present. Yeah. So essentially invalidating every other uh, potential therapeutic intervention so they can justify the implementation of emergency author authorization measures. Absolutely. Yeah. But where do we go from here? So here's the that's problem. A good, you that's have a all good these... question. Good question. Where do we go from here? You have many scientists and physicians that feel as I do uh, that are trying to figure out where we go from here because our typical safety and regulatory agencies have been compromised. So Fail. where do you go from here? Um, I believe where we go from here is getting the information out and getting enough people that have taken these inoculations and, and people take them to protect their loved ones, not even themselves most mm -hmm. of the time. Many times. Um, these are not, you know, some people to be angry at. Um, these are, you know, I, I feel deeply compassionately towards these people who were trying to protect their loved ones. Mm -hmm. um, we need to stand together as one people and say, um, we're not going to accept this. We're not going to, we're not going to accept this, especially not for our children and try to get to the bottom of this and see what's really behind all these efforts. Is it really about a virus or is it more about uh, other, you know, political motivations and campaigns as it seems to be? Yeah, that's, that's a great 
uh, opt optimistic viewpoint, but I think it's going to fail largely because of the effective propaganda campaign that they've wagered. I mean, these people's minds are so set in cement with the wrong information. There is nothing you can do. These are individuals who are essentially walking dead zombies. They, they could have their brother, sister, mother, father get the vaccine and die with the needle still in their arm, and they would go out and get a booster the next day because in their there's mind, a, it's safe and effective. Yeah. It's safe and effective. There's a few people like that, but I think there are oh, many, I, many others that uh, I'm, I'm a glass half full type of yeah, girl. Well, I, I'm I a realistic. realistic and <laughs> I've seen it too many times. I mean, it is like beating your head against a wall for many of these individuals. They're just, there's nothing you can do. And I mean, I mean, we have I, to keep trying and we have I to have gotta keep trying, but I just want to be realistic and, and let people know and warn them that, 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 that you are, uh, up against the most effective propaganda campaign in the history of the United States. Now, you're not wrong in that, but I still think that getting the word out in a variety sure, of, of ways and appealing to these people, just getting the information to them and having a rational discussion about not just not just these gene therapies, but all of the other things going on simultaneously around them. No, I'm, you're 100% yeah. correct. But I'm telling you the end result in many, if not the vast majority is gonna be beating your head against a brick wall. It's just not gonna move. You're, you can tell there's no bit of information. It doesn't compute with their brain. They just are so blocked and, and insulated against the truth that it's just a waste of time. But I, I, you can't argue against trying. It's just that I want people to understand you have to be somewhat realistic that this is, pro I mean, I've seen it so many times, my friends and their parents and their, their siblings and loved ones, they just, there's this barrier that just prevents any uh, adoption or openness to new data information. They've made their decision, you know, and I think it was Mark Twain said, you can, it's far easier to fool someone than to convince them they've been fooled. I and mean, this is so true. So simple. That is so true. And, and there's a psychological explanation for that as well. Um, uh, I've spoken about it before, not that I'm a psychology expert. But so what's the explanation? So once you have taken an inoculation like that, it's a safety uh, preservation mm -hmm. uh, signal to yourself to not accept that you would have put yourself in danger right. knowingly, um, that, sh that you would have placed yourself or your loved ones in that position knowingly. So uh, it's almost like there's a disconnect in the, yeah. in the ability to accept that health. you would have harmed yourself because we're wired not to intentionally harm ourselves. So we can't therefore accept um, that we would have done so. Um, you know, some people call it cognitive dissonance, whatever. Yes, um, absolutely. Yeah, that, that's a good explanation. And there is an amount of that there, but there are also many people who understand now uh, that they could be in danger from these gene therapies and they, they do regret getting these gene therapies. And these are the people that will help those that it's more difficult for to by being able to say, Hey, I did this too. I did this too, to protect my loved one. And look what happened to me and look what happened to my family. Or here's where I am now. I just want to warn you because I did the same thing you did. These will be the people that help get the word out. And I am a person of faith. I absolutely, 
absolutely believe God has a hand in this and that he will help. Um, I, I, I believe that. I truly believe that. I think ultimately, but it seems from my perspective, being a pragmatic realist, is that the best strategy is to reinforce the people who never bought into it to begin with because they they are already understand there's there's very little if any cognitive dissonance presence and as a result we can preserve the control group because ultimately the truth will come out the truth will come out if we can preserve the control group if we can prevent these 40 to 50 percent of the population that has not taken the jab then we will know in a year or two years three years somewhere down the road how devastating this intervention was yeah, I mean, I absolutely agree. We have to preserve a control group. We also have to think of ways that we can help those that have been injured. Um, and I and I brought this out in a letter I recently wrote uh, advocating for Dr. McCullough, but people that have gotten this inoculation, uh, if they have mid to long-term effects, if you deny that any adverse effects are really going on, then the efforts of, uh, going into those treatments for people that are having uh, health effects are not going to be there mm -hmm. for them or their children or anybody. Um, we have to accept that these are real in order to help these people that have already taken the inoculations. And I believe we have to try. Uh, yeah. Some people have brought up siRNA perhaps uh, has its own dangers, but well, you know, I've discussed this with other other guests in the past, and their conclusion was is just simply implementing measures that optimize health because that will activate your body's systems to, uh, I guess, uh, not harmonize, but uh, uh, there's a specific term. Uh, I'm, I'm not recalling at the moment, but essentially it optimizes your system and self-corrects essentially. Uh, so things like vitamin D, optimizing your level, measuring and not just getting it, you know, measuring your vitamin D level, becoming metabolically flexible, seamlessly integrated between burning uh, fat as your primary fuel and glucose. Uh, exercise, sleep, circadian yes. rhythm, abiding, abiding. So all the basics that, I mean, even if they didn't do squat, which is, we know that's not the case. We know that it will help optimize, help optimize your immune system. If it didn't though, you're still going to get healthier. So what's the downside? There is like no downside. So, but, but the conventional media, they won't, they won't accept it. They don't, do not believe the, the, the hypothesis, the thesis that you, you have an immune system that is, was designed to address this. They believe that it's yes. hogwash and it's the only thing that's going to work is their injection therapies. Yeah. So uh, there's an immunosuppressive region on the spike protein um, that I personally believe is causing um, a T cell immunosuppression. It's, it's also present in uh, Sensitin 2, and it helps induce tolerance during pregnancy, immune tolerance. Mm -hmm. I think what's happening in, in the people that have received the injection is that they are, their T cells are being suppressed. This has also been borne out in recent publications. Mm -hmm. uh, so the only thing left is their specific immunity to that very isolated region of the spike protein. And this is why they are more susceptible to the variant infections. They, they don't have the ability to respond with their normal T cell repertoire and they have a narrow window of immunity to just the original um, 
immunogen so what, or what, immunized. Would interferon be uh, some a valuable treatment for these individuals? So in terms of ADE pushing the um, pushing the phenotype towards an IF or one interferon one or TH one um, type uh, cellularity has been shown to be helpful in the animal studies where ADE was recognized. If you can push towards a TH1 rather than a TH2 mm-hmm. phenotype, it does ameliorate. Um, Simple. The phenomenon. Interferon has been around for a long time. I mean, it's time immemorial, but as a treatment that we've had it for decades. I, yeah, I don't know. I have to pull the specific studies on how they skewed um, back to uh, TH1, but uh, that's that's an option for ADE. Um, yeah. Which we, we didn't discuss, but you know that has the potential, actually even this fall in a few months, is the ability to, to know if we're really going to de- have a decimating effect on the, those who got the jab. Uh, it may not do anything, but we may have millions more die as a result. We don't know. We don't know. We no don't clue. know. And, I, and I'm not one to jump on the bus of, you know, everybody's going to, uh, to have this uh, lethal effect within a couple of years because we don't know. And I also think a couple of months, body, maybe. Yeah. The human body is a, a lot more sophisticated than right. we give it credit for. And, you know, God, God made us grand. Um, in design. And I think it might even surprise those that, that, uh, that would think that this would happen or should happen based on animal studies, because we're not animals. Um, well, technically we are, we're, we're an important subset though, <laughs> as for dark sure. Yes. We're, yeah. We're, we're much more sophisticated. So uh, I really appreciate you sharing your wisdom and your insights with us uh, on uh, this important topic. I'm sure it's helped many people. Is there anything else you'd like to add or recommend the place that people visit to learn more about your work? I don't have my own um, no Twitter page or anything. No Twitter feed. People have asked me about that before. I've okay. started to post things on LinkedIn just because oh, the, the, it's gotten to the stage where I believe it's that important to Yeah, LinkedIn is pretty educate. good for, for sensory. They, they actually pulled Robert Malone off and then they had a, uh, mm-hmm. response and people came to rescue him and they reinstated him, but they pulled Robert Malone off of LinkedIn. I know. Yeah. I think it's gotten to that point. And, it, and if I could say anything enough, it's that um, there, there are other simultaneous agendas going on and people need to be aware of these and to educate themselves on, on these things going on and make sure that they, uh, they've, prepared and, uh, you know, such as we're seeing in South Africa and the UK with food shortages and things like that, you know, um, that's the the only other thing I would say, again, I'm, I'm a toxicologist in practice and I, and I practice in, in different ways that are not associated with, with these, uh, gene therapies, Sure. Well, I'm a former Boy Scout and their <laughs> motto was be prepared. <laughs> yeah, as we should at any time, of course, um, with in Texas, with the floods that we've had and everything else and the power outages, I think people really got uh, educated as to how having a backup generator and backup food supplies is really practical uh, in terms of the unexpected. So uh, just buy the food that you would normally eat. Um, have a backup generator, 
uh, in case of power outages and things like that and and stock up on your vitamins and make sure to take vitamin D. Well, you're looking at someone who hasn't taken vitamin D this century, essentially, <laughs> but my levels are in the optimal range. So you can also That's get great. it from the sun if you live somewhere nice. You can't, men have a better time with that than women as they age though, because our ability to, uh, and as you age period, your ability to get vitamin D from the sun, um, metabolize it appropriately, uh, decreases. So that's why yeah, well, it's large, largely a reflection of your health status. So I'm nearly 70 and I still have really, I don't take any oral vitamin D. And I think that when many women don't get the high levels because they have breasts to cover. So they tend to have less skin coverage when they go out in the sun. Cause the only way you get it, it's not being in the sun. You have mm -hmm. to be in the sun on unexposed skin with the unexposed skin. So, you know, there's variables, but anyway, you just got to measure it. There's no way around it. And whatever the variables are, you'll account for the differences. If you measure it, then you know. So if you if you need to take more, then take more. So with respect to that, how would you would you recommend that people just do that through their physician, or do they go out to one of these quests or any lab test type? No, you, can, you can get through a physician if you have insurance coverage. It helps. Uh, we offer one on our site that is just a. Mm -hmm. uh, you, you order the test that we send a little uh, kit, which includes mm -hmm. a a little pinprick that you put a blotter drops of blood on this blotter paper or oh, card wow. okay. and you send it in and then you get the results back and you can even measure omega-3 to omega-6 ratios too. So, but you got to know the number. In fact, it's grassroots health and they've done, I think we've done 15,000 people now and they've, they, it's like a research mm -hmm. study. So they, sure. they, for their work, they've been able to identify that if, because they measure all these different variables and they put mm -hmm. it through computer analysis. They've concluded that the average adult normal body weight needs about 8,000 units a day, 8,000. So, okay. wow. you know, it's if many people to me that they seem that's like a mega dose and they're reluctant to do it. But, but this, the data shows that unless you get up to that level, it's not going to work for most people. Now, if you're a 50 pound underweight child, it's going to be a lot different dose. But as you know, if you're normal, normal weight adult typically tends to be around that. I think even Fauci said he takes six to 8,000 units of vitamin D a day. Of course, yeah. he doesn't recommend it for anybody else. No, no. Uh, yeah. But <laughs> yeah, here's all the story. I've got a bunch of podcasts coming up in the future about people who've written books about him. So, yes, uh, he's very enlightened. Not well respected within the scientific community uh, by, by many of his peers. Yeah, seems to be an, a, he's an inept researcher, but he's a brilliant politician, beyond brilliant. So he know he knows how to play the game. All right. Well, thanks for your time. And um, thank you. And you have a wonderful day. Oh, that's easy to do. <laughs> thanks. Yeah. Great. All right. Talk to you soon. All right, bye. bye.